Well, good morning, everybody. We think of the story that we've just heard as the conversion of Cornelius, and that is how I usually refer to this passage, as the conversion of Cornelius. And if you're familiar with the Bible, you'll understand already the significance of that story, the importance of Cornelius's conversion, because he is the first ever Gentile convert. That is to say, the first ever non-Jewish convert to the Christian faith. With with Cornelius, the doors open to the Gentile world, that is to the non-Jewish world. And the church outgrows its Jewish foundation. Or perhaps we could say, we have left off and have cleared the tower. The church has left its Jewish launch pad. Now it is true that in the book of Acts, we've already, uh, we've already heard about Samaritans coming to faith in Christ and being welcomed into the church, and that's significant. Um, it's a significant step because the Jews did not regard the Samaritans as truly Jewish. But the Samaritans did regard themselves as being truly Jewish, truly descended from Jacob, and they maintained the tradition of circumcision. That, that being the entry right into the people of God under the Old Covenant. So whilst it was significant that Samaritans had been welcomed in, Gentiles was a whole new ballgame. They were uncircumcised. They were unclean. And so in fact, actually, this is a double conversion story. Uh, Last week, we examined a double miracle story. Uh, Peter healing Aeneas and raising Tabitha from the dead. A double miracle story. This week, we have a double conversion story. The conversion of Cornelius and the conversion of Peter. And both conversions are incredibly important in what they teach us. And both conversions, interestingly, are woven together. They are in dialogue. What does it mean? Well, let's look at both conversion stories. I'm going I'm to focus first on Peter's conversion story, and then afterwards, second, I'm going to look at Cornelius's conversion story. So let's start with Peter. Peter was, of course, um, he was raised a devout Jew in first century Palestine in Galilee. And as part of his Jewish upbringing... He would have learnt to distinguish between things that were clean and things that were unclean. And when I say this, I'm certainly not talking about modern germ theory and scientific ideas about hygiene. No, rather, the Old Testament taught the Jews that in many areas of life, they were to distinguish between things that were clean, that is to say, acceptable in the presence of a holy God, and things that were unclean, things that were not acceptable in the presence of a holy God. They were, for example, to distinguish between clean and unclean meat. Um, Quadrupeds, for example, uh, four-footed, four-legged animals, were clean if and only if they had both... Anybody, anybody? They had both. That's it, a cloven cloven hoof. And yes, they chewed the cud. If they chewed the cud and had a cloven hoof, they were clean. So sheep, cattle, goats, they're all acceptable, all clean. But horses, camels, pigs, rabbits, they were all unclean. Unacceptable 
because they only had one attribute and not the other. And any mammal or reptile that had neither attribute, well, that's totally unclean, unacceptable. Fish were acceptable as long as they had scales. Otherwise, unclean. Birds were, well, there were some clean ones, but primarily they were unclean because you never knew what they'd been touching or eating. These distinctions served in context to teach the Israelites about the fundamental difference between the holy and the profane. And there's a whole book in the Old Testament to explain all about this. It's the book of Leviticus. Well, so part of Peter's upbringing is to learn about clean versus unclean. Part of Peter's upbringing is also to learn the the idea, the correct idea, that the Jews are God's elect people, a chosen nation, a royal priesthood, a a, a special people specially chosen with the special privilege of uniquely knowing who the creator of the universe is. Now, whilst both of these ideas are correct and biblical, and they had their reasons for being, they had their applications, the Jews distorted them in daily life. For example, um, the doctrine of election in first century Palestine, the doctrine of election had given rise to the widespread Jewish assumption of ethnic superiority. Jews understood Gentiles to be inferior because they did not know God and they did not know his law. But they were wrong. Election does not equal favoritism. In fact, God always has his elect, but with God there is never favoritism. Election does not equal favoritism. Also, election does not equal superiority. In fact, most of the time it kind of means the opposite. But as far as Jewish culture was concerned, Gentiles were unelect, inferior. And on the other hand, the food laws meant that Gentiles were constantly eating and in contact with unclean food. Gentiles are therefore unclean. They're both, in fact, unclean and unelect. Furthermore, across uh, the Middle East, both in their day and today, to eat together was a profound statement of belonging. Um, Kind of like in Australian culture where to eat in somebody's house is, is... is, is an offer of friendship. Um, in their day, to eat together was a profound statement of belonging. Sure, uh, um, at, a, at, a, at a large public dinner party, you'd all be seated according to your rank, uh, according to your status, and so that meant that you didn't have to worry about eating with somebody undesirable because they'd be seated a long way from you. But, but, but at a private, in a private house, uh, to, to eat together... Uh, that signaled that you belonged together. You had to be very careful about who you ate with because to eat together in a private home was a powerful statement about belonging together. Therefore, when we think about all these ideas together, we can see that it is completely impossible for a devout Jewish man to visit the home of a Gentile and absolutely, certainly, definitely impossible to share a meal with a Gentile eating Gentile food in a Gentile house. And the passage that we've just read together, it attests in multiple places just how objectionable it would have been for Peter to do this. It's going to take a miracle to get him to do that. Now, Peter's 
prejudice is not biblical. It's cultural. And it is important for us to understand that. However, it was hard for Peter, just as it is hard for us, to distinguish clearly between theological, biblical truth and cultural beliefs. Peter often got them confused, and we often get them confused. When it comes to right and wrong, we often fail to distinguish between what the Bible teaches plainly and what's acceptable at church, even though at times they can be completely different things. Hard to distinguish between biblical truth and cultural belief. In uh, chapter 10, verse 28, Peter states the obvious in front of Cornelius, the Italian. He says, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. And uh, the word translated in the Pew Bible as law, it's not actually the usual word for law, as in the law of Moses. Peter isn't talking about the law of Moses. He's, the word that he's used suggests tradition. It actually suggests taboo. He's saying, you know it's against our tradition. You know this is completely taboo for a Jew to visit a Gentile. He knows that the Bible doesn't prohibit it. It is his home culture that forbids it. And yet for Peter, as for us, most of the time, we find it hard to tell the difference. And therefore, as I've said, in order for Peter to be able to take the gospel to the Gentiles, in order for him to welcome them in as full citizens, brothers and sisters in Christ, without them first becoming Jews, in order for Peter to do this, it's going to take nothing short of a miracle. And as it happens, he gets a miracle. In fact, he gets four miracles. Five, in fact, if you include all of them. So let's have a really quick squiz at those four miracles. Miracle number one is a, visit, is, a, is, a, is a vision. And we hear about this vision twice at the beginning and at the end. It's a large sheet filled with all kinds of quadrupeds, mammals and reptiles, birds of every kind. And the command comes, get up, Peter, kill or sacrifice. Sacrifice and eat. And Peter refuses. And back comes a rebuke. It's a warning. It's a prohibition. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Um, in, in the Greek, literally, it includes an unnecessary second person singular pronoun. Uh, unnecessary in Greek as it is, is, is in English. I can say, do not walk on the grass. Um, it doesn't need a pronoun. But if I say, you do not walk on the grass, then suddenly it's all about you, isn't it? And there is an unnecessary first-person singular pronoun in this text. So literally it is, that which God has cleansed you may not make profane. Peter. It's happened three times. Three being the biblical number for emphatic emphasis. This statement becomes the theological basis for the entire story. It undergirds everything. That which God has made clean, you may not treat as profanity. The text says that even while Peter was doubting the vision, literally doubting the vision, after all, how could such a thing come from God? Um, three men arrived. Again, that number, three. A miracle of coincidence. That's our second miracle, a miracle of coincidence. And it leads into a third miracle. The Holy Spirit said to him, look, three men are looking for you, but rather get up, go down and leave with them with no doubts that I have sent them. 
doesn't say how the Holy Spirit said this, but clearly it was said in some direct and unmistakable way. That's our third miracle. And miracle number four, Cornelius' angelic visitation. Can you see when Peter arrives at Cornelius' house and he hears about the angel visiting Cornelius um, uh, at exactly the right time for Cornelius' men to be sent and arrive at his house at exactly the right time for him to arrive at exactly right, that's, that's, it's, it's a miracle. And then there's miracle number five, the Gentiles being filled in power with the Holy Spirit, which is probably actually not so much Peter's miracle as Cornelius' miracle, so we'll talk about that in a minute. But these four or five miracles are nothing less than that which was, requ- that which was re- required to convert not only Peter, but Peter and the entire church under his leadership in Jerusalem. To convert them to the idea that, as astonishing as it sounds, God has indeed granted repentance unto life, even to the Gentiles. So that's Cornelius' conversion story. Sorry, that's Peter's conversion story. Now let's think about Cornelius. Cornelius and his entire household, that is his family and his servants, they come to faith in Christ upon hearing Peter preach. Peter's sermon begins uh, in chapter 10, verse 36. Peter begins by referring to historical events that from their point in history were recent events and were universally known. Jesus of Nazareth went around. He went around preaching. And vast numbers of people were miraculously healed at such events. Everybody knew that. The historians of the age knew that. The Romans thought that this guy was some conjurer who'd learned his tricks in the East. The Jews thought that he was demon-possessed. And it was by the power of Beelzebub that he cast out demons. But it was undeniable. Everybody knew it. Jesus went around preaching, healing vast numbers of people. Historical fact. Peter interprets these things theologically and correctly, giving them their true and most important meaning, that Jesus was the herald of a message of peace, peace with God. Jesus' miracles demonstrated that he's Lord, Lord of everything, even death and disease bow to his commands. And this power came from God. And it vindicated everything he said. The miracles and the teachings were power signs of the Holy Spirit. Then Peter moves from public things through to private things. Jesus was crucified. Well, that was public, but God raised him from the dead on the third day in order to be seen privately, not by everyone, not publicly, but privately by witnesses selected beforehand by God. It was a physical, bodily resurrection. Jesus ate and drank with them. And again, Peter interprets these things with their true, life-saving, theological significance. Jesus of Nazareth is Lord. He's judge of everybody. And Jesus of Nazareth is Savior. Everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And Peter assumes correctly that someone like Cornelius would have a reasonable knowledge of the writings of the Jewish prophets. All of these things, Peter said, are in fulfillment of, of the prophets of old what we call the Old Testament. As it turns out, Peter was just warming up. He was just getting going in his sermon, but he was interrupted in the best possible way. He was interrupted by God. The Holy Spirit came down in power on Cornelius and his household. 
This was manifestly obvious to Peter and his circumcised buddies. The, the speaking in tongues and praising God, whatever that might have looked like, the, the, the Jewish believers recognized it for it was convincingly similar to what had happened to them on the day of Pentecost. Look, if you like, at uh, chapter 11, verse 15. Peter says, As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as he'd come on us at the beginning. By which, of course, he means the day of Pentecost described in Acts chapter 2. These passages, sorry, this passage uses terms uh, like the gift of the Holy Spirit and receiving the Holy Spirit and being baptized with the Holy Spirit. The passage uses those kinds of terms interchangeably. When people are baptized with the Holy Spirit, he, he leaves his mark on them in many and various characteristic ways. But the one common denominator, the one thing the Holy Spirit gives everybody he touches is the heartfelt conviction that Jesus is Lord. They believe in Jesus, in other words. That's the Holy Spirit. Together with a desire to know him, to love him, to praise him, to worship him, to follow him. That's the Holy Spirit. When, some, when someone is filled with or baptized in the Holy Spirit, they may sometimes receive a new prayer language, either human or angelic. And this phenomenon is called speaking in tongues. Uh, this is normal. But it is by no means either universal, nor is it essential. What we must remember about this passage is that God is being strong-handed in this passage, primarily for Peter's sake. The Holy Spirit is being pretty much as obvious as he can be in order that Peter might see it and get it. And see it and get it, he does. That God himself is filling these people with his own presence. He is touching them literally from the inside out. And if God is touching them, they must be clean. Because God doesn't touch unclean stuff. And when he does, he makes it clean. And and so Peter orders that they immediately be baptized with water because they've already received all of the things that baptism with water points to. The cleansing of sin, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, crossing over from death to life. Yeah, They've already been baptized. We may as well just do the water stuff anyway. I'm talking about Peter again. Hold on. Let's remember that this is Cornelius' conversion. So let's stop talking about Peter and start talking about Cornelius. And what we need to think about is, what was Cornelius converted from and what was Cornelius converted to? And most of us, we're kind of familiar with conversion stories, aren't we? I mean, you know, we have rallies and, 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 and we love to have guest speakers and have somebody give their testimony And in terms of the conversion stories that that we love to listen to and we find extraordinary and exciting, we might might get to hear somebody who was addicted to drugs or involved in some highly illegal or highly immoral lifestyle and we might listen carefully to their conversion story and be amazed at the power and grace of God that God brought them out of such self-evident, self-destructive darkness, danger into the freedom and light and power of the kingdom of Christ. And we might think, wow, that was great. But what was Cornelius like before he was converted? Oh, we're told a great deal about him in verse 2 and again in verse 22 of chapter 10. We hear that Cornelius is devout, righteous, God-fearing, respected by all the Jewish people. 
This means that he believes, he believes in the God of the Bible. He is aware of God's ethical standards, his character and nature. All of this probably because of the influence of the local Jewish synagogue, which he may have attended regularly, sitting at the back in the Gentile section. He is clearly faithful in his relationships, clearly eschewing sexual immorality and drunkenness. We can presume safely that he doesn't lie or cheat or or gossip. And most importantly, and probably the thing that really endeared him to the locals, is that he's not open to bribes. He's not corrupt because he's an important local official for an oppressive foreign regime. But this guy, he doesn't take bribes. It it, it tells us that he prays regularly, or literally in the Greek, all the time. And he's someone who gave generously to the poor, sacrificial giving. Okay, so here we've got someone who believes in God, regularly attends a place of worship, is exceptional in his integrity and honesty, gives sacrificially, and prays constantly. Most of us would consider that this man is already converted. But he isn't. And it's really important that we understand that. Sure, what he has is a knowledge of God. He knows that God exists. He has an awareness of God. What he doesn't have is a relationship with God. He's never met him. He doesn't know God personally. He hasn't, to use Jesus' term, he hasn't been born again. But to be filled with the Holy Spirit is to have met God. It is to have met Jesus through the Spirit of Christ. And in meeting Jesus, it is to have seen the Father. In verse 46, Cornelius is praising and worshipping God because he's met Jesus personally, just like Peter has. Peter has met him physically, to be sure, and Cornelius hasn't. But both of them, and this is the significant thing, both of them have met him spiritually in the power of the Holy Spirit. In a very real sense, therefore, struggling to find the right words to express this, but if you'll you'll come with me and understand my language, basically, Cornelius has been saved from religion for a relationship with God. Now for the first time in his life, Cornelius will truly understand grace and forgiveness and freedom. He'll be set free from all kinds of doubts and fears about his eternal destiny. He'll he'll know personally the the God that previously he's just read about, be told about, done his best to try and live right. Well, what do these two conversion stories teach us? Two incredibly important things. Like Peter and the church at the beginning of this story, we all tend to fall into the trap of imagining that such and such a type of person either will not be interested in the Christian faith or will not be eligible into the Christian faith for the fact that they're such and such a type of person. And down through the centuries, every conceivable form of prejudicial prejudicial discrimination has been found in the church. We've tried to baptize the lot. Racism, nationalism, sexism, social and cultural snobbery. 
I regularly find all of those things in my own head. I have to deal with them. But all such discriminations are wiped out by the cross. Because if the cross was powerful enough to tear down the dividing wall between God and humanity, then the cross absolutely must also have the power to tear down the dividing walls between us as human beings. It would be nonsense to suggest otherwise. The church is the place where you are welcome. And that must especially be true if the outside world is a place where you are not welcome. Discrimination stops here. Therefore, the kingdom of God is radically inclusive. Radically inclusive. And we need to keep on reminding ourselves of that and dealing with the prejudice that infects our own hearts and minds. And we need to deal with that stuff before we go and infect others. Try and baptize it. Not see it when it's amongst us. Otherwise, it goes unchallenged when we meet together. The kingdom of God is radically inclusive. Cornelius' story, on the other hand, shows us that the kingdom of God is radically exclusive. Radically exclusive. It doesn't matter how wonderfully, faithfully, or sincerely religious you are, how good or generous you are as a person. If you're not believing in Jesus, you're not in. That's it in a nutshell. This passage illustrates and holds together both the radically inclusive and radically exclusive nature of the kingdom of God. We must reject the cultural prejudices that permeate our society whilst at the same time insisting that Jesus is the only way to God because he is. On both scores... The church will offend many people. And we ourselves are likely to get this backwards. And so this passage reminds us of the way in which the kingdom of God is radically inclusive. And the way in which the kingdom of God is radically exclusive. And so this passage continues to challenge the socks off us. Just as it did Peter and Cornelius. The Lord be with you.